Thanks for joining us for another edition of the 41 Files, a special Friday edition. Sam Hartle here in the 41 Action News Podcast Studio. It's Friday, May 31st. May the 31st be with you. And also with you. And uh, also with you. Oh, no, there's an inner spirit now. Um, I'm, the voices that you're hearing, uh, that's 41 Action News meteorologist Gerard Jabaley. Gerard, you, you haven't been on the pod yet. No, this is the first time, so I'm uh, glad to be hanging out with you guys uh, and talking about a subject that, of course, very familiar with. Uh, also in studio is reporter Ariel Rothfield. Ariel, hello. Oh, hello. On the phone, reporters <laughs> Stephen Dial and Sarah Plake. Hello. Hola. What's up, guys? So, topic that we wanted to talk about today was the topic that uh, has been front and center in the Midwest basically for all spring, uh, and that's been you know a, a wild weather pattern, and that weather pattern has culminated in the last couple of weeks in some really nasty tornadoes. Uh, we saw that uh, a couple of weeks ago in Jefferson City and in southwest Missouri, and then this Tuesday uh, we saw that really close to home. Um, for many in the metro, that's the, the strongest tornado that they've seen since, I think, 2003. Uh, the National Weather Service counts uh, a, a tornado down in Lynn County, Kansas, uh, more recently um, as, as one of the stronger tornadoes in the metro. But certainly for the Kansas City immediate area, uh, Tuesday night had lots of people um, watching TV and uh, consuming uh, stuff online. So there's certainly a high interest for that. Uh, Taylor Hemnes is actually out of the office on a special assignment. He's in the middle of a uh, of a vintage uh, warplane right now. So they don't so have jealous a, of that. They don't have way. a podcast studio up there. So uh, Taylor will be back next week uh, on on Wednesday. Gerard, I want to start with you. Uh, weather forecasting seems to have gotten to the point where, even last week, multiple days before Tuesday, you guys seem to have a pretty good idea that. When it came to Kansas City, Tuesday might be a day where we would under the gun. Walk us through um, the confidence and, and how that played out over the weekend and then Memorial Day and on Tuesday morning. All right. Well, overall, the large-scale pattern that we've been having since the start of May has been kind of angling in just the right way that we are going to at least see a very active weather pattern, meaning at least thunderstorms. Um, but this time of the year, those thunderstorms can get very big. Now, overall, it doesn't take much when you're in May to get big thunderstorms to really go. Now, what we were seeing that really was a little bit more alarming was the fact that there was a much bigger, much more powerful system that was going to be coming in. And that's what makes it good for us because we can see those systems much stronger further out. Those little tiny little things that can spark thunderstorms are much tougher to see several days out. But the big systems we can see several days ahead. That was very helpful, number one. Bad thing, of course, is that the bigger events, of course, are, were, were quite uh, at least wary about that. So we saw that coming on our model data seven days out. Will it hold together? And all the way until the day of, it continued to show Kansas City being practically bullseyed. And Gary saw this. I saw this. There are several times we've had these setups, but it doesn't quite materialize for one reason or another. But Tuesday was, of course, the day that we really saw it happening. We were all ready to go, knowing that this could be one of the biggest days in uh, at least Kansas City's recent weather history to see something pretty big. So clue number one was already there. We were prepped and, and ready to go. You had mentioned that this was part of a much larger pattern. Um, and so Tuesday, if I recall correctly, was one like... Uh, set one of several consecutive days of severe weather or tornadoes across the country. 
So the tornadoes that struck Jefferson City in southwest Missouri the previous week, that's all part of the same cycling pattern? It's pretty much the same pattern, and what we're seeing is in the upper level of the atmosphere when we get southwest winds to bring in these uh, systems that can sometimes originate all the way in the Pacific, but those little disturbances that just make their way here, once they run right into that warm, moist air that's near the ground, they just blow thunderstorms up. And when we know we're going to be stuck in that, that is kind of our indicator. The opposite of that might be if we were in a pattern that was bringing more northerly winds up high, and that just brings in the cold air. And we kind of had that a little bit, but, you know, th- that was the general pattern that we were looking at. All right, so Tuesday morning, you wake up, uh, the Storms Prediction Center, uh, which was, you know, kind of the National Weather Service's, you know, overarching, um, you know, organization that monitors uh, uh, storms. I think they have a more technical description. Um, but they had uh, put a moderate risk, I think, uh, on Tuesday for northern Missouri. And then that risk shifted a little, little bit further south throughout the day. What were you paying attention to Tuesday? And then you knew that you were going to go out um, and, and track one of these storms down. How were you preparing in terms of where you were going to go and what resources you were going to use? Well, the first thing is, is anytime we have any weather, that's going to be significant. You know, they stick me right in the uh, storm tracker Jeep, and I'm going to be well on whatever comes up. And my goal, of course, is to be on what is the strongest storm in the area. Uh, and track that wherever it may go. Um, we were looking at some of the what we call the high-resolution, high-refresh data. What is that? It just means that every hour we get a new set of data. It doesn't go out very far, only about 12 to 18 hours. And even after 12 hours, it can get very inaccurate. But it's great to have in the day of event. And it gives us kind of an idea what could happen. It was showing those thunderstorms that flooded out northern Missouri. I knew that was going to be a big issue, but the bigger thing that I had to pay attention to was what was going to form out west. And we were expecting a complex of thunderstorms to develop way up from the border of Nebraska and then stretch down south. Which one of those was going to be the big one? Typically speaking, and by the Storm Chaser handbook, it's the southern cell that tends to be the biggest. We call that the tail end Charlie. Why? Because it has access to the best air. The Remember, storms feed off of that warm, moist air, and they can interact with each other. If one storm puts out a whole bunch of cold air, it cuts it off and kind of chokes it out. So the southern cell had that, and I went straight for it, looking at it, thinking this one has the best chance at producing something significant. Will it? Well, we followed it, and we found out exactly what really occurred uh, a little bit later on. So if you'll have to refresh my memory. Um, I w- we were sitting here um, at the station, I think it was about 5, 5.30, when the first tornado warning uh, went out for the general area. And at that time, the storm uh, that eventually made its way all the way up toward Kansas City was just to the north and east of Emporia. Yeah. Uh, where were you at that point, and where did you think the storm was going to go? Okay, so I started out west near Topeka, and I put myself there intentionally because I want to be upstream of the storm. Storms tend to take a northerly to easterly track, and I know that I can catch a storm a lot easily going to the south to catch it than I can chasing after it because sometimes they can move 50, 60, sometimes faster uh, miles per hour. So uh, you gotta you got to start upstream. Pretty big storm fired up near Topeka. I was mm-hmm. concerned about that one at first. It was dropping two-inch hail, you know, about golf ball size. And that one at first was the biggest of the two. 
but I decided to let it go because there was going to be some interaction, and the southern cells started to have a little bit of rotation. That prompted the first warning. I started heading that way to it, but also staying within range of that Topeka cell, just in case that one wanted to do something funny and become the bigger of the two. But then I, you know, continued to watch that one kind of die out, headed to the southern cell, and just stayed with that one. Eventually, there was a confirmed tornado report over there, at least based upon radar. Uh, I never saw that. It was so hazy, so hard to see, lots of precipitation. And that's been the theme, actually, this May. This May has been the May of hard-to-see tornadoes. Uh, all the tornadoes that I saw the previous week on my own, what I call chasecation, I, I took a vacation. I took three days off just to go follow storms around all across the plains, including the Mangum tornado in Oklahoma, very hard to see. And there's been very few of those uh, where you can really make them visible. So started there, didn't see the first small tornado, but as we continued to track that storm as it headed toward the Lawrence area, knowing it was kind of making a beeline toward Lawrence, that this one, if it continued to grow, could be a big problem for them. Snow, you posted a video on on social media and you had mentioned kind of the the moisture and the rain i think a lot of people were having problems differentiating they saw this big rain shaft of video and it took us a while to realize that that's where the tornado is 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 inside of that yeah and that's kind of what your video was where did you capture that video and and how of that shaft how how what percentage of that shaft in your video was the actual tornado. It's pretty mind-blowing video, no doubt, and uh, shocking no matter who's looking at it. Even a meteorologist with you know a lot of experience looking at it is still pretty terrified of it. But the whole thing that they were looking at, if you go back and watch the video, the, luckily the entire mass that was there was not the tornado. But we did not know exactly how much of it was because it got wrapped in rain. I shot that just on the south side of Lawrence, right where K-10 meets 65. I got on the on-ramp facing east so that I had a very quick, easy out because I knew as this thing grew, I needed to be able to get out of the way. Luckily, it was moving very slowly, so I had time to stop. My photographer, Chase, even got out and set up his camera, but I was running two cameras myself, the one on top of Storm Tracker, even my phone uh, camera as well. So, you know, as we were following the storm going into Lawrence, that's when we really started to see this thing grow and get big on the rotation. I said, oh, my gosh, this is probably going to put out a big tornado here soon. And it's terrifying knowing that it's just southwest of Lawrence moving off to the northeast. You're just hoping to heck that it kind of takes a turn of some sort. So, again, to what your question was, answer that part again, the video that you see, that massive rain, that is the rain-wrapped what we call the hook of the storm. And a lot of times that's what happens. You don't get to see tornadoes and they get shrouded in rain or something like that. And, you know, a lot of people think, oh, we'll, we'll be able to see it coming. No, you won't. No, not in this case. You might see something that might look like just a wall of rain coming at you and you're thinking, is it just rain or is mm -hmm. it something worse? So inside of that, I would say probably somewhere between 30 to 40 percent of that wall of rain, specifically the right side toward the middle of it. Uh, is exactly what the tornado was buried within. But it was so difficult to see, you couldn't make out either edge of it, really. If I recall correctly, um, you know, Gary uh, and Lindsey Anderson were in wall-to-wall -wall coverage on 41 Action News, and using the radar and, and the tools that they had, it seemed like right as it got toward South Lawrence is right, really when it kind of picked up steam, um, not necessarily speed, but in strength. And so it kind of took the Kansas River um, east and northeast uh, through Eudora, 
uh, into Linwood and Bonner Springs. And so I want to bring in a couple of our reporters. Um, Ariel, you were out chasing that night, um, and you were first on the scene um, of some storm damage, I think, in Bonner Springs. Linwood. Linwood. We were were in Bonner Springs when it was coming, uh, following listening to Gerard and Gary and Lindsay and everyone um, back at the studio and looking at our radar to stay kind of um, south of the storm path. And then we went to Linwood. And our first indication that a storm or something uh, happened there were uh, down trees in the pathway. We drove a little bit more and then we saw a home now without a roof, a uh, side of a home uh, completely gone. Um, and I have to give credit to my photographer, Giovanni Garcia. He was really key in keeping us safe, but we pulled up to the road. It was unbelievable. It looked like we couldn't tell if it was um, a semi-tractor or a camper, but it was completely flattened. All we could see was the wheels. And I think before he even uh, put his car in park, he was jumping out, making sure that everybody was okay. I mean, it was just incredible jaw-dropping unbelievable and it still amazes me today that nobody was injured or nobody died or was severely injured and we'll get back to that because i think that's a a incredible point um which might speak to um the meteorological community and the work that that you all did um you interviewed a, a homeowner shortly after you got there had the the magnitude of what had happened sunk in to the people that you talked with that night No, I don't think it had. I think everyone was in shock, kind of like we were in shock just a little bit. I mean, it was so fresh. We got there before first responders even got there. We got them going door to door, making sure everybody was okay. Everyone was just amazed it happened. I mean, the homeowner that we spoke to live on air, he had no idea, but... It was incredible because he was thanking us for coming and, and, and reporting and checking on him and everything. So, no, I, I don't think it's uh, sat uh, with him until the next day. And so speaking of the next day, we had um, some uh, evidence that night. I, I know, Gerard, um, we had some video from the air uh, and then um, you know from SkyTracker where we kind of got a hint of, of the extent of the damage, especially in Linwood and in parts of uh, South Lawrence. But it wasn't until the next day where we were able to fly our helicopter again over those areas. There was a, a nursery in Linwood, um, a really heroic story of one of their employees that hid underneath a, a farm tractor yeah. uh, to ride out the storm. Uh, Stephen and Sarah, want to bring you guys back in. Uh, you both uh, were part uh, of our eyes and ears uh, coverage team the next day, Wednesday. Uh, where did you guys go and what were the stories that, that you were able to uncover? Uh, Stephen, we'll start with you. Well, first, uh, I went to Linwood, and, you know, hats off to Gerard and our weather team first, because I don't think uh, they get enough credit uh, as to when things happen, they just snap into action. And, you know, we say we're the most accurate and all that, but, you know, Gerard's eyes on the ground literally helped, you know, save some people's lives in some instances. So, first, I just want to start by saying congrats to our weather team. But I went to Linwood, and uh, when I was uh, in college, one of my professors told me, he said, uh, you know, as a journalist, you're going to interview people on some of the best days and worst days of their lives. And uh, well, this week and in Jefferson City last week really showed that. Uh, when we got there, uh, it was me, photographer Drew Snyder, and Megan Strickland. And when we got there, of course, the roads are closed. Of course, you see all the emergency personnel. And we just started walking. And, you know, we had to do a lot of walking because the roads are closed. And you just see flattened home after flattened home after flattened home and just the amount of people 
that aren't from there or live in that community, some people who even had their homes damaged, helping other people clean up their homes. And I think the theme when I was there, just seeing all the damage, you know, I used to work in Florida, so I've seen hurricane damage and all of that, but never until Jefferson City and then this week, seeing tornado damage up close and personal, seeing so many people just couches, uh, I mean, not couches, but mattresses in trees and just homes completely destroyed and just seeing the joy in people's eyes when they found little things. I interviewed one woman, her name was Fran. Uh, while we were interviewing her, one of the people finding stuff in the debris started ringing this bell and gave it to Fran. And the bell was Fran's mother's. And Fran is about 67 years old. And so that tells you how old that bell is. And uh, her mom would ring the bell for her to come home in the afternoon. And she's just in tears because she found this bell in, in, in the rubble. And another woman we talked to who was watching 41 Action News and got in her basement with her husband after hearing the warnings. You know, her great-great-grandmother had all of these books, these decades-old books that they were able to salvage some. And so just talking to people on the worst day of their lives and seeing those little moments is really powerful. Uh, I, but real quick, I think all three of you um, had... Uh, interviews where you were talking to people who were in their safe space, uh, and then when they came out of their safe space, they they walked out into their house and there was no roof anymore. Oh, absolutely. And I, right. I, I can't yeah. imagine what that would be like. Sarah, you spoke to a family that basically their entire house was destroyed uh, except yeah. for their concrete safe room. Uh, what was right. that like talking to them? I mean, they 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 were they were stunned. They they didn't know. Really, what to say? Um, if that were me, I would have been, you know, just devastated, crying on the floor. I feel like, but they were so positive throughout it, and that was the craziest thing. But yeah, they uh, they went down into their safe room. It was, um, you know, like three feet of concrete that separated them from, you know, the outside and then them. So he was just saying how crazy it is that just three feet of concrete kept them safe. And uh, so they were down there, and they they said. Because we were in our safe room, we are alive. Like, they would not have survived if they would not have gone down there. And uh, so they came out, and everything's just scattered all over the place. The guy said the tornado, um, you know, people say it sounds like a freight train rumbling by, but the guy said, no, it's actually more like two-by-fours in a blender mixed with a semi plowing through your house. And it literally looked like a semi plowed through his house. Um, and so they said that when they were down there, they could just hear everything going on and just like this, this magnitude of just like this power and wind and everything breaking apart was just something that he's never going to forget. And, uh, and certainly I don't want to hear that sound. I don't think any of us do. But uh, he said that when it was all over, they, they kind of were trying to crawl out and down there in the basement, all the rafters and the um, ceiling joints or joists and literally their house fell on top of their sectional couch and then this um, pool table that he had that he really liked. It was an OSU pool table. He went to OSU and he like loved that pool table. But anyway, all of it fell on top of that and then that kind of created a little like pathway underneath for them to crawl out um, and get outside and just kind of see everything that had happened. So um, they were there were just so many people out there helping and I had interviewed some other people and they're just so positive about it. I, I just can't believe how positive and just you know, we can rebuild it. It's fine. It's like, well, how? You know, it's it's just amazing to see, um, you know, even after they have lost almost everything, that they are still so resilient. 
Sarah, it kind of sort of reminds me to the stories that you told the previous week when you were down in Golden City in southwest Missouri. Yeah. Was it comparable in terms of the damage? Certainly the the stories and the positive attitudes. Um, A couple of people did unfortunately lose their lives in in Golden City. but was that a was that a, a, a similar experience or what was different? And then Stephen, I'll ask you about the same thing uh, in yeah. Jeff City. Well, Golden City, I think that um, less homes were impacted because Golden City is very small, and then all the damage was on the outside, kind of um, kind of in the country. And there was just um, there were a few houses, but still, um, those houses really, I mean, they were just ripped off the foundation. A, a, a trailer. You know, it was just blown to shreds and blew like was blown across the street. And then another home, there was nothing left. Um, so yeah, there, there were fewer homes affected, but the damage was, I think, maybe the same, if not a little worse, than what I had seen in Bonner Springs. So, um, and that was devastating because you know we we learned about um, a couple, Jean and Opal Harris, who um, you know they were found like 200 feet away from their house after it was all over. And it, I mean, that's just like the most awful thing you can think of. And uh, just hearing about them as a family and who they were, they were cattle ranchers for generations. Um, and then this other couple who were in the trailer who had tried to take some sort of cover. I mean, you know, when you're in a trailer, you really don't have any sort of protection. So uh, the, the husband lived, um, the wife unfortunately passed away. Her name is Betty. Um, and But even then, people were just like, yeah, you know, things can be replaced. Uh, lives can't obviously, but uh, it was kind of the same thing. It, it was just—it's just—it's uh, it, insane to walk through people's houses or yards and just see bits of their lives scattered everywhere. It's just—it's surreal. It really is. Stephen, was that your experience in Jefferson City? Yeah, and you know, a lot of these natural disasters—you um, know—it's always kind of like a, a. Every story is unique. I think the uniqueness with Jefferson City is that, you know, a tornado ripped through the state's capital, not far from the Capitol building. Um, while they, the day before the tornado, they, the city made an emergency declaration because of flooding, and then you have a tornado. Um, homes were damaged, really, you know, some large apartment complexes there, and the car dealership is just the, the images that stick out of my head constantly of just trucks, you know, one and two ton trucks flipped over and just all over the place. And so it was a little different than Linwood just because Jefferson City was more of a, you know, a, I don't want to say a metro area, but, you know, it was, it was more more dense, more things very close to each other where you had hotels damaged, you had, um, you know, restaurants damaged, you had apartments damaged. And uh, Linwood, while, you know, the path was 30-plus miles, you know, through Lawrence and Linwood and, and other places, you know, the homes were kind of, you know, spread out. And so that was the difference where, you're looking at the state capitol building in the distance and homes just completely like roofs gone and things like that. And then Linwood, you know, a more rural area and still the same type of bad damage. And what I'm just shocked at is how no one was seriously injured or killed in either one. You have an EF4 and, correct me if I'm wrong, an EF3 tornado in Jefferson City, and no one was seriously injured is just mind-blowing when you look at the damage. Gerard, you've heard um, Ariel, Stephen, and Sarah all describe the damage. Um, the National Weather Service sent survey teams out the next day or the day after in each one of those things. What kind of visual clues are they looking for? What kind of damage are they going to be looking for to, to determine how to classify these storms? 
Uh, good question. So really, it's it's a very difficult job, and it has a small degree of subjectivity to it. Um, really, what they're looking at is the type of structure that was built, how well built was it, and, of course, the damage that it sustained. There's plenty of uh, indicators they can look at to try to classify wind speed, but there is still some variability in there. For instance, of course, a home that is well anchored to the foundation will withstand it. Uh, one that is made out of concrete um, anchored to the slab will withstand it a little bit better than, say, just a wood frame that might be elevated off the ground. So they have a lot of things that they try to look at. But, again, there's probably a, a, at least a little bit of subjectivity because it's not just that. The, one of the indicators that they can't know is how long it had to sustain sustain the wind for. So if it only had to sustain 150 mile per hour wind for a few seconds versus over a minute, well, you're going to see different degrees of damage here. So uh, a very tough job they have to do, but I agree 100% with the EF4 rating from what I've seen. I myself did not get to see the EF4 damage, but the damage that I saw on the east side of Lawrence, I would have classified as EF3, and that's exactly what it was. Um, So uh, I I would like to touch just a little bit upon what they were describing, I think even Ariel a little bit here. The damage is one thing, but there's uh, a bit of a, I guess, something that you could describe that's a little more detailed than that when you're actually there. First of all, you're expected when you go to a place that's been destroyed by a tornado, and you're expecting to see bits of pieces of houses, two-by-fours, window frames, things like that. But when you get there, it's a lot more than that. You're seeing people's lives itself just strewn out and thrown all over the place. You're seeing their photo albums. You're seeing their CD collections, their clothing, and all sorts of very personal items. And it's really, uh, in a way, when you look at that, it's like, gosh, this is like just completely insulting in a way to see someone's lives just ripped out and thrown out for everyone to see. The second thing is the smell. No one really knows what it's like, what the smell is like until you actually go. So now let me paint this for you. While you're there seeing all these items, these personal things, looking at what could have been a scene of death, you know, you're looking at two-by-fours impaled into the ground. Now let's mix that in with the smell of that splintered wood, the smell of fresh tree sap. Now you add in the smell of diesel or gasoline, raw sewage. Maybe even propane that might have been leaking out. And all of that mixed together with the wet dirt smell, it is sickening. It really is. And that's the part that can really wrench your guts into a knot and makes it even more terrifying than what you could see in any picture. So the, there's a psychological of lasting effect, too. Without a doubt. And even people that didn't suffer the tornado, if you were there just walking around looking at the damage, you'll never forget it. It can be really uh, mind-boggling. And, you know, the one that really stands out to me since this one was when I was in uh, right there after Greensburg. I saw the tornado before it hit, but after being in there walking around physically made me sick to my stomach. And it was really tough to be walking around through everything knowing what had gone through there. So that's the one part. But um, here's the interesting thing. Before we even saw the damage, Gary and I were absolutely mind-blown at what we were seeing on the radar. Now things have changed a little bit in the past uh, five to ten years. We can see debris on the radar now, and that was our first indication. I saw that to the southwest of Lawrence, saw the debris on the radar, and I said, wow, okay, we have a confirmed tornado. This is not good. And we could continue to see the debris signature all the way through into Bonner Springs, practically. And it went 55,000 feet in the air. That's the top of the thunderstorm. Just remember that a commercial jet airliner that people fly in is around thirty to 35,000 feet. Could you imagine being a pilot out there and maybe seeing 
pieces of metal and debris flying past you. That's just amazing to think about with the power in these storms. But in addition to the debris signature, while this was going on, before I saw any actual damage, I was looking at the radar signature showing around 150 to 160 mile-per-hour winds. And that, of course, is very consistent with Mm -hmm. the damage that they found, 170 mile-per-hour winds. And that was enough right there for Gary and I to be more than concerned, of course, about this uh, moving straight toward the Bonner Springs area as it was chewing up Linwood with winds of that speed for so long. And I have to say that there are some very lucky communities. South side of Lawrence has a mobile home park of about 100 and maybe 150 mobile homes that narrowly missed getting hit there. So a lot of Lawrence missed getting hit. Eudora missed getting hit. Bonner Springs is as lucky as any of them because the tornado dissipated just before it moved through Bonner Springs. And the whole storm decided to go through a regeneration cycle over KCK, Gladstone, all those areas before putting that second tornado out near Kearney. So this one could have had Kansas City's name all over it. It's very unfortunate for the people of Linwood, but I think all things considered, there was a lot of fortunate people uh, and communities from this tornado, given its size and strength, that uh, this could have been seriously so much worse. And I'm just as mind-blown as everyone else that we are not talking about fatalities today. So... Because the storm, we knew the storm formed kind of sort of in a rural area north uh, and east of Emporia, uh, and we were able to track it on the radar. People had a, a fair amount of lead time as it related to, okay, this is one I need to get a hold of. Um, you know, uh, we were monitoring the National Weather Service chat room, um, and and they were imploring the media to use the strongest possible language that they could as it related to warning people to get in their safe spot. Is that part of the contribution, technology, communication, um, eyes in the field that all combined um, to that we didn't have any fatalities and only just a couple of dozen people injured? Uh, I'm sure of it. Yeah. I'm absolutely sure of it because what was issued was something that I think Lawrence has never experienced and many other people. So we actually have three levels of tornado warnings that maybe most people are not sure of but or aware of. A tornado warning, we have one that is possible. Now we can now confirm a tornado by radar, seeing the debris. That's kind of a level two. The level three, the very top, is something that is rarely used, and it was used on Tuesday. Tornado emergency. When they use those words, that's when those communities like Joplin, Greensburg, Moore, Oklahoma, these places that got absolutely leveled, they have issued tornado emergencies prior to those events. And when they say tornado emergency, my hair on the back of my neck is standing up right now just thinking about it. It's terrifying to hear those words come out. And it was issued with that storm uh, near the Lawrence area all the way through Linwood into Bonner Springs. And they actually even extended it into the KCK area for absolute fear that it could continue and go all the way into KCK. Thank goodness that didn't happen, though. And you say the the hairs on the back of your neck stand out. I've been talking right for the past three days, too, about a dozen or more so people who were actually living through it, uh, sheltering in place in their basement. And every single one of them told me, typically, they don't blink an eye when they hear tornado warning or tornado watch. But there was something about the storm, whether it was receiving phone calls from uh, family members who were watching our newscasts, um, telling them you need to get down or, or 
everybody said this storm just felt different and they felt like they needed to take shelter and not only take shelter, but put something over themselves. Like um, people were told me they were grabbing mattresses just to um, hide from the shattered glass and everything else. And that really saved their lives, they believe. And I, I think it absolutely did. The other thing, if you don't mind me jumping in here really quick, uh, is that, you know, do you, you, the number one thing people do when a tornado warning is issued for them, most people don't believe this. The number one thing they do, they go outside to look at it. They need visual confirmation of it. So my whole goal while I'm out there is to provide them that visual confirmation in a way that, first of all, I, I know which way to look. I know the storm. So having the meteorological knowledge kind of helps put that there. And that way they don't have to put themselves in any danger. But I understand people's need to see it and... I think giving that visual confirmation is part of what we can do to help people take shelter because when you see something as powerful and as terrifying as that, that's that extra push to actually get them to seek shelter. And I'm, I'm hoping that's what we were able to provide for people, not just with the wording, but also with the pictures themselves. Uh, Sarah had to jump off the call, so we appreciate her joining us. Sarah, uh, Stephen, I know that you're also on assignment. Uh, I wanted to start to wrap things up here. Stephen, have you had a chance to you know kind of reflect personally and then as a journalist on on what your coverage has meant to you uh, over the last couple of weeks? Man, like I mean, everyone had so many unique stories and so many unique backgrounds, and just I mean, the whole team, the photographers and you know producers, everyone just working together. And like I, you know, like I kind of said when I started, like talking to people on the worst days of their lives, like. I had a conversation with Megan when we were in Linwood about, like, if you were in this situation, would you be talking to the media or would you be talking to the news and just the stories and the support from people? That's, I think, just what kind of gets you through the day because, you know, some of us take this home with us as well. Like, yeah, you know, my house was not destroyed, uh, but we're also there peering through someone's lives while they're trying to pick up the pieces. And so, uh, you know, just what I take away from it, I mean, the images, oh, my God, just crazy i've never seen that up close and personal but walking away just knowing that whenever something happens you know we see a lot of bad crap on the news we see a lot of bad stuff on the news but when something like this happens communities come together and that's what that's what i walk away with ariel what what have you come across the last couple of days that will better inform you as a person and as a journalist moving forward Resilience. It's all about the connections you make with your neighbors, uh, with the people in your community, your old classmates. Um, there were people helping out that went to elementary school with the other person. They just heard it was in the area and they dropped everything that they were doing and went and helped to pick up the pieces like the the pictures that a family could have um, down the road. And um, just being there, I, I met some really great people that I now, as corny as it sounds, call friends. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have been talking the last couple of days just checking in. But I think everything really comes down to resilience and having that communication and, and just checking in on each other, being a good neighbor, because that goes a long, long way. I think what I am still like amazed at is that people weren't concerned for themselves. They were concerned for everybody else. Even someone whose home was completely leveled is thinking, you know, the media, us, for being there on their worst day to saying, thank you for getting it out. Thank you for spreading the message. Thank you for showing kind of why it's important to shelter and, and everything else. And it, I, I'm just speechless. It, it's been, I've been reflecting a lot these past three days. And it's just one of the stories that has haunted me that will stay with me um, 
it's just, it's been an incredible, surreal kind of experience covering it. Gerard, presumably summer is right around the corner. The the setup for severe weather moves a little bit further north. Um, what's the next month look like? It sounds like even if the severe threat moves north like it normally does every year, that we could still be in this wet, rainy pattern. Um, what should people look out for next, kind of in the next uh, two, to, two to four weeks? Well, luckily, we're not expecting anything on the magnitude that we saw on Tuesday. But we have to at least uh, expect uh, a few more weeks of this rainy pattern until we start seeing a major shift here. But isn't it amazing? We went from the worst drought we've ever had within less than a year. Now we're in the wettest month of May ever in an incredibly active severe weather pattern. But yes, uh, you're, as you're very knowledgeable in meteorology, actually, you, you follow that pretty well, uh, Sam. So we're seeing that continuing to shift off to the north. So uh, Nebraska, the Dakotas, and eventually up into Canada is where you can see things start to shift further north as those systems don't reach as far south. But, you know, our, our pattern can still bring us some active thunderstorms. We're hoping the flooding threat won't be as much of an issue here soon enough because we need a break from the rain. Um, so that's kind of what we're aiming at right now and hopefully a little bit of a drier period for all the folks that are also suffering from a lot of the river flooding that we're having too, which is, you know, still a very volatile situation in many places. But um, I, I would like to take an opportunity quickly. First of all, I want to thank everyone that was able to, well, say thank you to us. We only do this because we are, of course, urging folks to take cover. And from the sound of it, they were listening. And I have to say thank you to that. I have to say thank you to all our uh, team here that worked so hard to make that happen because the meteorologists can't do it uh, you know, w- uh, without the help of you guys, including the reporters on the ground. And also to the community themselves for heeding the warnings, but also sharing your stories after. It may not seem like a big deal, but you know when they actually share their stories – it's something that people can really feel and understand, and that may just help the next person. And that's what we're here to try to do, is at least share some of that with everyone so that not only can you see their impact and maybe make some sort of a connection, but maybe the next event, get the next person to go with that. So also, thank you to our first responders that were out there. Hard days work for them going behind and working so quickly, so hard. And I know they did a spectacular job, and and it shows because what could have been a whole lot worse were, again, we're talking potential fatalities. So everyone that was there during this event, uh, of course, anyone on the ground, of course, Ariel, Stephen, and Sarah that were there to to feel what the community's vibe was, I'm still just amazed at the positivity that they have kept. Even when minutes after they come out and they say, Everything's gone, but we're okay, and we'll be okay. And right. it's, it's just surprising. I, I don't know how I would feel in that situation, but it's mind-blowing. So um, we're, of course, going to be thinking and talking about this for some time, but just like Ariel said, the resiliency of this community and the neighbor-helping-neighbor neighbor part is amazing. It's really kind of cool to see. Uh, my thanks to reporter Stephen Dial and Sarah Plake for calling in today uh, to talk about their experiences. Uh, Ariel Rothfield, reporter, for talking about her experiences here in their studio. And, of course, Gerard um, talking about uh, uh, the storm chase and, and reflecting on uh, what could have get, was a bad situation on Tuesday, but it, it could have been even worse, I think, uh, from, from all accounts. Um, Gerard, Ariel, thank you for taking the time. Thanks, Steve. And we'll see you next week on 41 Files.